The Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 1758. The author's preface. There is no question whatsoever that is of greater importance to mankind and that it more concerns every individual person to be well resolved in than this. What are the distinguishing qualifications of those that are in favor with God and entitled to his eternal rewards? Or which comes to the same thing? What is the nature of true religion? And wherein do lie the distinguishing notes of that virtue and holiness that is acceptable in the sight of God? But though it be of such importance, and though we have clear and abundant light in the word of God to direct us in this matter, yet there is no one point wherein professing Christians do more differ one from another. It would be endless to reckon up the variety of opinions on this point that divide the Christian world, making manifest the truth of that declaration of our Savior, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. The consideration of these things has long engaged me to attend to this matter with the utmost diligence and care and exactness of search and inquiry that I have been capable of. It is a subject on which my mind has been peculiarly intent ever since I first entered on the study of divinity. But as to the success of my inquiries, it must be left to the judgment of the reader of the following treatise. I am sensible it is much more difficult to judge impartially of that which is the subject of this discourse in the midst of the dust and smoke of such a state of controversy as this land is now in about things of this nature, as it is more difficult to write impartially, so it is more difficult to read impartially. Many will probably be hurt in their spirits to find so much that appertains to religious affection here condemned, and perhaps indignation and contempt will be excited in others by finding so much here justified and improved. And it may be some will be ready to charge me with inconsistence with myself and so much approving some things and so much condemning others as I have found this has always been objected to by some ever since the beginning of our late controversies about religion. It is a hard thing to be a hearty, zealous friend of what has been good and glorious in the late extraordinary appearances, and to rejoice much in it, and at the same time to see the evil and pernicious tendency of what has been bad, and earnestly to oppose that. But yet I am humbly but fully persuaded... We shall never be in the way of truth, nor go on in a way acceptable to God intending to the advancement of Christ's kingdom till we do so. There is indeed something very mysterious in it, that so much good and so much bad should be mixed together in the church of God. Just as it is a mysterious thing which has puzzled and amazed many a good Christian, that there should be that which is so divine and precious the saving grace of God in the new and divine nature, dwelling with so much corruption, hypocrisy, and iniquity in the heart of the same saint. Yet neither of these is more mysterious than real, and neither of them is a new or rare thing. It is no new thing that much false religion should prevail at a time of great reviving of true religion, 
and that at such a time multitudes of hypocrites should spring up among true saints. It was so in that great reformation and revival of religion that was in Josiah's time, as appears by Jeremiah 3.10 and 4.3 and 4, and also by the great apostasy that there was in the land so soon after his reign. So it was in that great outpouring of the Spirit upon the Jews that was in the days of John the Baptist, as appears by that great apostasy of that people so soon after so general an awakening, and by the temporary religious comforts and joys of many. John 5.35 You are willing for a season to rejoice in his light. So it was in those great commotions that were among the multitude occasioned by the preaching of Jesus Christ of the many that were then called, but few were chosen, of the multitude that were roused and affected by his preaching, and at one time or other appeared mightily engaged, full of admiration of Christ and elevated with joy, but few were true disciples that stood the shock of the great trials that came afterwards and endured to the end. Many were like the stony ground or thorny ground, but few comparatively like the good ground. Of the whole heap that was gathered, great part was chaff that the wind afterwards drove away, and the heap of wheat that was left was comparatively small, as appears abundantly by the history of the New Testament. So it was in that great outpouring of the Spirit that was in the Apostles' days, as appears by Matthew 24, 10-13, in Galatians 3.1, in Galatians 4.11 and 15, Philippians 2.21 and 3.18 and 19, and the two epistles to the Corinthians and many other parts of the New Testament. And so it was in the great reformation from popery. It appears plainly to have been in the visible church of God in times of great reviving of religion from time to time, as it is with the fruit trees in the spring, there are a multitude of blossoms, all of which appear fair and beautiful, and there is a promising appearance of young fruits, but many of them are of short continuance. They soon fall off and never come to maturity. It is by the mixture of counterfeit religion with true, not discerned and distinguished, that the devil has had his greatest advantage against the cause and kingdom of Christ all along hitherto. It is by this means principally that he has prevailed against all revivings of religion that ever have been since the first founding of the Christian Church. By this he hurt the cause of Christianity in and after the apostolic age much more than by all the persecutions of both Jews and heathens. The apostles in all their epistles show themselves much more concerned at the former mischief than the latter. By this, Satan prevailed against the Reformation, begun by Luther, Zwingli, and others, to put a stop to its progress and bring it into disgrace, ten times more than by all those bloody, cruel, and before unheard of persecutions of the Church of Rome. By this, principally, has he prevailed against revivals of religion that have been in our nation since the Reformation. By this, he prevailed against New England to quench the love and spoil the joy of her espousals about a hundred years ago, 
And I think I have had opportunity enough to see plainly that by this the devil has prevailed against the late great revival of religion in New England, so happy and promising in its beginning. Here, most evidently, has been the main advantage Satan has had against us. By this he has foiled us. It is by this means that the daughter of Zion in this land now lies on the ground in such piteous circumstances as we now behold her, with her garments rent, her face disfigured, her nakedness exposed, her limbs broken and weltering in the blood of her own wounds, and in no wise able to arise, and this so quickly after her lay great joys and hopes, Lamentations 1.17. Zion spreadeth forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. The Lord hath commanded concerning Jacob that his adversary shall be round about him. I have seen the devil prevail the same way against two great revivings of religion in this country. Satan goes on with mankind as he began with them. He prevailed against our first parents and cast them out of paradise, and suddenly brought all their happiness and glory to an end. By appearing to be a friend to their happy paradisic state, and pretending to advance it to higher degrees, so the same cunning serpent that beguiled Eve through his subtlety by perverting us from the simplicity that is in Christ has suddenly prevailed to deprive us of that fair prospect we had a little while ago of a kind of paradisic state of the Church of God in New England. After religion has revived in the Church of God, and enemies appear, People that are engaged to defend its cause are commonly most exposed where they are least sensible of danger. While they are wholly intent upon the opposition that appears openly before them to make head against that, and do neglect carefully to look all around them, the devil comes behind them and gives a fatal stab unseen, and has opportunity to give a more home-stroke, and wound the deeper, because he strikes at his leisure, and according to his pleasure, being obstructed by no guard or resistance. And so it is ever likely to be in the church whenever religion revives remarkably till we have learned well to distinguish between true and false religion, between saving affections and experiences, and those manifold fair shows and glistering appearances by which they are counterfeited, the consequences of which, when they are not distinguished, are often inexpressibly dreadful. By this means the devil gratifies himself, by bringing it to pass that they should be offered to God by multitudes, under a notion of a pleasing acceptable service to him, that is indeed above all things abominable to him. By this means he deceives great multitudes about the state of their souls, making them think they are something when they are nothing. And so eternally undoes them, and not only so, but establishes many in a strong confidence of their imminent holiness, who are in God's sight some of the vilest of hypocrites. By this means he many ways damps and wounds religion in the hearts of the saints, 
obscures and deforms it by corrupt mixtures, causes their religious affections woefully to degenerate, and sometimes for a considerable time to be like the manna that bred worms and stink, and dreadfully ensnares and confounds the minds of others of the saints, and brings them into great difficulties and temptations, and entangles them in a wilderness out of which they can by no means extricate themselves. By this means, Satan mightily encourages the hearts of open enemies of religion, and strengthens their hands, and fills them with weapons, and makes strong their fortresses, when at the same time religion and the church of God lie exposed to them as a city without walls. By this means he brings it to pass that men work wickedness under a notion of doing God's service, and so sin without restraint, yea, with earnest forwardness and zeal, and with all their might. By this means he brings in even the friends of religion insensibly to themselves to do the work of enemies by destroying religion in a far more effectual manner than open enemies can do under a notion of advancing it. By this means the devil scatters a flock of Christ and sets them one against another as that with great heat of spirit under a notion of zeal for God and religion by degrees degenerates into vain jangling. And during the strife, Satan leaves both parties far out of the right way, driving each to great extremes, one on the right hand and the other on the left, according as he finds they are most inclined, or most easily moved and swayed, till the right path in the middle is almost wholly neglected, and in the midst of this confusion, the devil has great opportunity to advance his own interest, and make it strong in ways innumerable, and get the government of all into his own hands, and work his own will. And by what is seen of the terrible consequences of this counterfeit religion, when not distinguished from true religion, God's people in general have their minds unhinged and unsettled in things of religion, and know not where to set their foot, or what to think or do, and many are brought into doubts whether there be anything in religion, and heresy and infidelity and atheism greatly prevail." Therefore, it greatly concerns us to use our utmost endeavors clearly to discern and have it well settled and established, wherein true religion does consist. Till this be done, it may be expected that great revivings of religion will be but of short continuance. Till this be done, there is but little good to be expected of all our warm debates, in conversation, and from the press, not knowing clearly and distinctly what we ought to contend for. My design is to contribute my might, and use my best, however feeble, endeavors to this end, in the ensuing treatise, wherein it must be noted that my design is somewhat diverse from the design of what I have formally published, which was to show the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God, including both His common and saving operations, but what I aim at now is to show the nature and signs of the gracious operations of God's Spirit, by which they are to be distinguished from all things whatsoever that the minds of men are the subjects of, 
which are not of a saving nature. If I have succeeded in this, my aim in any tolerable measure, I hope it will tend to promote the interest of religion. And whether I have succeeded to bring any light to the subject or no, and however my attempts may be reproached in these captious and censorious times, I hope in the mercy of a gracious God for the acceptance of the sincerity of my endeavors, and hope also for the candor and prayers of the true followers of the meek and charitable Lamb of God. Part 1 Concerning the nature of the affections and their importance in religion. 1 Peter 1.8 Whom have not seen, ye love, in whom... Though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. In these words, the apostle represents the state of the minds of the Christians he wrote to under the persecutions they were then the subjects of. Their persecutions are what he has respect to in the two preceding verses when he speaks of the trial of their faith and of their being in heaviness through manifold temptations. Such trials are of a threefold benefit to true religion. Hereby the truth of it is manifested, and it appears to be indeed true religion. They, above all other things, have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false, and to cause a difference between them evidently to appear. Hence they are called by the name of trials, in the verse immediately preceding the text, and in innumerable other places, they try the faith and religion of professors of what sort it is, as apparent gold is tried in the fire and manifested whether it be true gold or not. And the faith of true Christians being thus tried and proved to be true is found to praise and honor and glory, as in that preceding verse. And then... These trials are of a further benefit to true religion. They not only manifest the truth of it, but they make its genuine beauty and amiableness remarkably to appear. True virtue never appears so lovely as when it is most oppressed, and the divine excellency of real Christianity is never exhibited with such advantage as when under the greatest trials then it is that true faith appears much more precious than gold, and upon this account is found to praise and honor and glory. And again, another benefit that such trials are of to true religion is that they purify and increase it. They not only manifest it to be true, but also tend to refine it, and deliver it from those mixtures of that which is false, which encumber and impede it, that nothing may be left but that which is true. They tend to cause the amiableness of true religion to appear to the best advantage, as was before observed, and not only so, but they tend to increase its beauty by establishing and confirming it, and making it more lively and vigorous, and purifying it from those things that obscured its luster and glory. As gold that is tried in the fire is purged from its alloy, and all remainders of dross, and comes forth more solid and beautiful, so true faith being tried as gold is tried in the fire becomes more precious, and thus also is found unto praise and honor and glory. The apostle seems to have respect to each of these benefits that persecutions are of to true religion in the verse preceding the text.
And in the text, the apostle observes how true religion operated in the Christians he wrote to under their persecutions, whereby these benefits of persecution appeared in them, or what manner of operation of true religion in them it was, whereby their religion under persecution was manifested to be true religion, and imminently appeared in the genuine beauty and amiableness of true religion, and also appeared to be increased and purified, and so was like to be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And there were two kinds of operation, or exercise of true religion in them, under their sufferings, that the Apostle takes notice of in the text, wherein these benefits appeared. Number one, love to Christ, whom having not yet seen ye love. The world was ready to wonder what strange principle it was that influenced them to expose themselves to so great sufferings, to forsake the things that were seen, and renounce all that was dear and pleasant, which was the object of sense. They seemed to the men of the world about them as though they were beside themselves, and to act as though they hated themselves. There was nothing in their view that could induce them thus to suffer and support them under and carry them through such trials. But although there was nothing that was seen, nothing that the world saw, or that the Christians themselves ever saw with their bodily eyes, that thus influenced and supported them, yet they had a supernatural principle of love to something unseen. They loved Jesus Christ. For they saw him spiritually, whom the world saw not, and whom they themselves had never seen with bodily eyes. Number 2. Joy in Christ. Though their outward sufferings were very grievous, yet their inward spiritual joys were greater than their sufferings, and these supported them and enabled them to suffer with cheerfulness. There are two things which the Apostle takes notice of in the text concerning this joy. Number one, the manner in which it rises, the way in which Christ, though unseen, is the foundation of it, by faith, which is the evidence of things not seen, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice. Number two, the nature of this joy unspeakable and full of glory, unspeakable in the kind of it, very different from worldly joys and carnal delights, of a vastly more pure, sublime, and heavenly nature, being something supernatural and truly divine, and so ineffably excellent, the sublimity and exquisite sweetness of which there were no words to set forth, unspeakable also in degree, it pleasing God to give them this holy joy with a liberal hand, and in large measure in their state of persecution. Their joy was full of glory, although the joy was unspeakable, and no words were sufficient to describe it, yet something might be said of it, and no words more fit to represent its excellency than these, that it was full of glory, or as it is in the original, glorified joy. In rejoicing with this joy, their minds were filled, as it were, with a glorious brightness, and their natures exalted and perfected. It was a most worthy, noble rejoicing that did not corrupt and debase a mind, as many carnal joys do, but did greatly beautify and dignify it. 
It was a prelibation of the joy of heaven that raised their minds to a degree of heavenly blessedness. It filled their minds with the light of God's glory and made themselves to shine with some communication of that glory. Hence a proposition or doctrine that I would raise from these words is this. True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. We see that the Apostle, in observing and remarking the operations and exercises of religion in the Christians, he wrote to, wherein their religion appeared to be true and of the right kind, when it had its greatest trial of what sort it was, being tried by persecution as gold is tried in the fire, and when their religion not only proved true, but was most pure and cleansed from its dross and mixtures of that which was not true, and when religion appeared in them most in its genuine excellency and native beauty, and was found to praise and honor and glory, the apostle, I say, singles out the religious affections of love and joy, that when then in exercise in them, these are the exercises of religion he takes notice of, wherein their religion did thus appear true and pure, and in its proper glory. Here I would, number one, Show what is intended by the affections. Number two, observe some things which make it evident that a great part of true religion lies in the affections. Number one, it may be inquired what the affections of the mind are. I answer, the affections are no other than the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. God has endued the soul with two faculties. One is that by which it is capable of perception and speculation, or by which it discerns and views and judges of things, which is called the understanding. The other faculty is that by which the soul does not merely perceive and view things, but is some way inclined with respect to the things it views or considers, either is inclined to them, or is disinclined and averse from them, or is a faculty by which the soul does not behold things as an indifferent, unaffected spectator, but either as liking or disliking, pleased or displeased, approving or rejecting. This faculty is called by various names. It is sometimes called the inclination, and as it has respect to the actions that are determined and governed by it, is called the will, and the mind, with regard to the exercises of this faculty, is often called the heart. The exercises of this faculty are of two sorts, either those by which the soul is carried out towards the things that are in view, in approving of them, being pleased with them, and inclined to them, or those in which the soul opposes the things that are in view, in disapproving of them, and in being displeased with them, averse from them, and rejecting them. And as the exercises of the inclination and will of the soul are various in their kinds, so they are much more various in their degrees. There are some exercises of pleasedness or displeasedness, inclination or disinclination, where the soul is carried but a little beyond a state of perfect indifference, 
And there are other degrees above this, wherein the approbation or dislike, pleasedness or aversion are stronger, wherein we may rise higher and higher till the soul comes to act vigorously and sensibly, and the actings of the soul are with that strength that through the laws of the union which the Creator has fixed between the soul and the body, the motion of the blood and animal spirits begins to be sensibly altered, whence oftentimes arises some bodily sensation, especially about the heart and vitals, that are the fountain of the fluids of the body, from whence it comes to pass that the mind, with regard to the exercises of this faculty, perhaps in all nations and ages, is called the heart. And it is to be noted that there are these more vigorous and sensible exercises of this faculty that are called the affections. The will in the affections of the soul are not two faculties. The affections are not essentially distinct from the will, nor do they differ from the mere actings of the will, an inclination of the soul, but only in the liveliness and sensibleness of exercise. It must be confessed that language is here somewhat imperfect, and the meaning of words in a considerable measure loose and unfixed, and not precisely limited by custom, which governs the use of language. In some sense, the affection of the soul differs nothing at all from the will and inclination, and the will never is in any exercise any further than it is affected. It is not moved out of a state of perfect indifference any otherwise than as it is affected one way or other. But yet there are many actings of the will and inclination that are not so commonly called affections, and everything we do, wherein we act voluntarily, there is an exercise of the will and inclination. It is our inclination that governs us in our actions. But all the actings of the inclination and will, in all our common actions of life, are not ordinarily called affections. Yet what are commonly called affections are not essentially different from them, but only in the degree and manner of exercise. In every act of the will whatsoever, the soul either likes or dislikes, is either inclined or disinclined to what is in view. These are not essentially different from those affections of love and hatred. That liking or inclination of the soul to a thing, if it be in a high degree and be vigorous and lively, is the very same thing with the affection of love. And that disliking and disinclining, if in a great degree, is the very same with hatred. In every act of the will for or towards something not present, the soul is in some degree inclined to that thing, and that inclination, if in a considerable degree, is the very same with the affection of desire. And in every degree of the act of the will, wherein the soul approves something present, there is a degree of pleasedness, and that pleasedness, if it be in a considerable degree, is the very same with the affections of joy or delight. And if the will disapproves of what is present, the soul is in some degree displeased. And if that displeasedness be great, it is the very same with the affection of grief or sorrow. Such seems to be our nature, and such the laws of the union of soul and body, 
that there never is in any case whatsoever any lively and vigorous exercise of the will or inclination of the soul without some effect upon the body and some alteration of the motion of its fluids and especially of the animal spirits. And on the other hand, from the same laws of the union of the soul and body, the constitution of the body and the motion of its fluids may promote the exercise of the affections. But yet it is not the body, but the mind only, that is the proper seed of the affections. The body of man is no more capable of being really the subject of love or hatred, joy or sorrow, fear or hope, than the body of a tree, or than the same body of man is capable of thinking and understanding. As it is the soul only that has ideas, so it is the soul only that is pleased or displeased with its ideas. As it is the soul only that thinks, so it is the soul only that loves or hates, rejoices or is grieved at what it thinks of. Nor are these motions of the animal spirits and fluids of the body anything properly belonging to the nature of the affections, though they always accompany them in the present state, but are only effects or concomitments of the affections that are entirely distinct from the affections themselves, and no way essential to them, so that an unbodied spirit may be as capable of love and hatred, joy or sorrow, hope or fear, or other affections, as one that is united to a body." The affections and passions are frequently spoken of as the same, and yet in the more common use of speech there is in some respect a difference. Affection is a word that, in its ordinary signification, seems to be something more extensive than passion, being used for all vigorous, lively actings of the will or inclination, but passion for those that are more sudden, and whose effects on the animal spirits are more violent, and the mind more overpowered, and less in its own command. And all the exercises of the inclination and will are either in approving and liking, or disapproving and rejecting, so the affections are of two sorts. They are those by which the soul is carried out to what is in view, cleaving to it, or seeking it, or those by which it is averse from it, and opposes it. Of the former sort are love, desire, hope, joy, gratitude, complacence. Of the latter kind are hatred, fear, anger, grief, and such like, which it is needless now to stand particularly to define. And there are some affections wherein there is a composition of each of the aforementioned kinds of actings of the will, as in the affection of pity, there is something of the former kind towards a person suffering, and something of the latter towards what he suffers. And so in zeal, there is in it high approbation of some person or thing, together with vigorous opposition to what is conceived to be contrary to it. There are other mixed affections that might be also mentioned, but I hasten to the thing proposed which was to observe some things that render it evident that true religion in great part consists in the affections. Evidence that true religion lies much in the affections, number one. 
What has already been said of the nature of the affections makes this evident, and may be sufficient without adding anything further to put this matter out of doubt. For who will deny that true religion consists in a great measure in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul, or the fervent exercises of the heart? That religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God, in his word, greatly insists upon it that we be in good earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts vigorously engaged in religion, Romans 12:11. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, Deuteronomy 10:12. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul? In chapter 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy might. It is such a fervent, vigorous engagedness of the heart in religion that is the fruit of a real circumcision of the heart, or true regeneration, and that has the promises of life. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. If we be not in good earnest in religion, and our wills and inclinations be not strongly exercised, we are nothing. The things of religion are so great that there can be no suitableness in the exercises of our hearts to their nature and importance unless they be lively and powerful. And nothing is vigor in the actings of our inclination so requisite as in religion, and in nothing is lukewarmness so odious. True religion is evermore a powerful thing, and the power of it appears in the first place in the inward exercises of it in the heart, whereas the principal and original seat of it. Hence true religion is called the power of godliness, in distinction from the external appearances of it that are the form of it, 2 Timothy 3.5 having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. The spirit of God in those that have sound and solid religion is a spirit of powerful holy affection, and therefore God is said to have given the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, 2 Timothy 1.7. And such, when they receive the spirit of God and the sanctifying and saving influences, are said to be baptized with the Holy Ghost with fire, by reason of the power and fervor of those exercises the Spirit of God excites in their hearts, whereby their hearts, when grace is in exercise, may be said to burn within them, as is said of the disciples, Luke 24.32. The business of religion is from time to time compared to those exercises wherein men are wont to have their hearts and strength greatly exercised and engaged such as running, wrestling, or agonizing for a great prize or crown, and fighting with strong enemies that seek our lives, and warring as those that by violence take a city or kingdom. 
And though true grace has various degrees, and there are some that are but babes in Christ, in whom the exercise of the inclination and will towards divine and heavenly things is comparatively weak, yet every one that has a power of godliness in his heart has his inclinations and heart exercised towards God and divine things with such strength and vigor that these holy exercises do prevail in him above all carnal or natural affections and are effectual to overcome them for every true disciple of Christ loves him above father or mother wife and children brethren and sisters houses and lands yea, even his own life. From hence it follows that wherever true religion is, there are vigorous exercises of the inclination and will towards divine objects. But by what was said before, the vigorous, lively, and sensible exercises of the soul are no other than the affections of the soul. Number two. The author of the human nature has not only given affections to men, but has made them very much the spring of men's actions. As the affections do not only necessarily belong to the human nature, but are a very great part of it, so inasmuch as by regeneration persons are renewed in the whole man and sanctified throughout, holy affections do not only necessarily belong to true religion, but are a very great part of it. And as true religion is of a practical nature, and God has so constituted the human nature that the affections are very much the spring of men's actions, this also shows that true religion must consist very much in the affections, such as man's nature, that he is very inactive, any otherwise than he is influenced by some affection, either love or hatred, desire, hope, fear, or some other. These affections we see to be the spring that set men a-going in all the affairs of life and engage them in all their pursuits. These are the things that put men forward and carry them along in all their worldly business, and especially are men excited and animated by these in all affairs wherein they are earnestly engaged and which they pursue with vigor. We see the world of mankind to be exceeding busy and active, and the affections of men are the springs of the motion. Take away all love and hatred, all hope and fear, all anger, zeal, and affectionate desire, and the world would be in a great measure motionless and dead. There would be no such thing as activity amongst mankind, or any earnest pursuit whatsoever. It is affection that engages the covetous man in him that is greedy of worldly profits in his pursuits, and it is by the affections that the ambitious man is put forward in his pursuit of worldly glory. And it is the affections also that actuate the voluptuous man in his pursuit of pleasure and sensual delights. The world continues from age to age in a continual commotion and agitation in a pursuit of these things, but take away all affection, and the spring of all this motion would be gone, and the motion itself would cease. And as in worldly things, worldly affections are very much the spring of men's motion and action, so in religious matters, the spring of their actions is very much religious affection. He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. Number three. 
Nothing is more manifest, in fact, than that the things of religion take hold of men's souls no further than they affect them. There are multitudes that often hear the word of God, and therein hear those things that are infinitely great and important, and that most nearly concern them, and all that is heard seems to be holy and effectual upon them, and to make no alteration in their disposition or behavior, and the reason is they are not affected with what they hear. There are many that often hear of the glorious perfections of God, His almighty power and boundless wisdom, His infinite majesty and that holiness of God, by which He is of purer eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity, and the heavens are not pure in His sight. And of God's infinite goodness and mercy, they hear of the great works of God's wisdom, power, and goodness, wherein there appear the admirable manifestations of these perfections. They hear particularly of the unspeakable love of God in Christ, and of the great things that Christ has done and suffered, and of the great things of another world, of eternal misery and bearing the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and of endless blessedness and glory in the presence of God. And the enjoyment of his dear love. They also hear the peremptory commands of God, and his gracious counsels and warnings, and the sweet invitations of the gospel. I say they often hear these things and yet remain as they were before, with no sensible alteration in them, either in heart or practice, because they are not affected with what they hear, and ever will be so till they are affected. I am bold to assert that there never was any considerable change wrought in the mind or conversation of any person by anything of a religious nature that ever he read, heard, or saw that had not his affections moved. Never was a natural man engaged earnestly to seek his salvation. Never were any such brought to cry after wisdom and lift up their voice for understanding and to wrestle with God in prayer for mercy. And never was one humbled and brought to the foot of God from anything that ever he heard or imagined of his own worthiness and deservings of God's displeasure. Nor was ever one induced to fly for refuge unto Christ while his heart remained unaffected. Nor was there ever a saint awakened out of a cold, lifeless frame, or recovered from a declining state in religion and brought back from a lamentable departure from God, without having his heart affected. And in a word, there never was anything considerable brought to pass in the heart or life of any man living by the things of religion that had not his heart deeply affected by those things. The Holy Scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affection, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, sorrow, gratitude, compassion, and zeal. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero 